0: I believe the American people can do better than points per game. 31% of all field goals are three-point shots. And 77% of free throws are made free throws. So you end up with 1% of all the players owning 99% of the salary because 58% of the shots are aren't counted equally. And and I think we can do better. Thinking Basketball Podcast, my name is Ben. And if Bernie Sanders wants to discuss scoring, we will discuss scoring. Today, that's what we're going to do, actually. Talk about the best scorers of all time. We are going to uh, do it a little differently, though. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the value of scoring based on impact metrics. I've I've coincidentally done a lot of work this year and especially over the the summer on scoring and trying to quantify its value. Uh, what's the relationship between volume and efficiency? So we'll we'll talk about that today. Uh, but man, it feels topical for August. I see people talking about. Who the best scorers are uh, on Twitter, and sort of there's this uh, arc to the season where once you get past the All Star break and the crescendo of the playoffs and sort of the come down of the uh, the draft and uh, the free agency, it's like oh then we just hit August, you know? People start talking about mayonnaise. When did when did that become a thing? I, I have no idea. We won't talk about mayonnaise today. Instead, we'll take the deep dive look at some new stuff around scoring efficiency, talk about the greatest scores in NBA history. Let's just get it out up front, okay? Dirk Nowitzki is the greatest big man score in history based on the numbers, at least the numbers that we're going to look at today. And of course, you can make a stylistic argument for that as well. Uh, And also, another thing that we'll talk about is that today's sensations like Steph Curry who are absolutely blowing up uh scoring points with volume and with efficiency are doing it better or or are more valuable with what they're doing than OG sensations like Wilt Chamberlain. So I, I don't know how long that's gonna take to discuss because I've never done a podcast. I'm just talking into a microphone by myself in my place. Uh so we'll we'll attempt to wade through those waters um, with some alacrity, but before that, uh, kind of, uh, there's a PSA that I want to get out about scoring. When we talk about scoring, um, it's this idea that scoring, in many ways, is a false dichotomy because we draw a line between scoring, and we and we take guys and their points per game, and their field goal percentage, and their fadeaway jumpers, and all that stuff, and we put it in one bucket. And we somehow separate that from the other bucket of offense, which is things like passing, creating, you know, collapsing the defense, uh, the quality of your shots based on the teammates around you, how much you're holding, you know, gravity, how much you're holding an opponent out uh, on the perimeter or something like that. We 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 tend to create this dichotomy between these two things, where it's actually very hard to separate them. I'll I'll attempt to do it today. Uh, I've done some statistical work this year, as I mentioned, that attempted to do that as well. So we we can kind of fudge it. We can kind of get a pretty good estimate of what that means. But I always have a really hard time overlooking the opportunity cost of scoring, meaning every time you go to shoot or score as a player, you're potentially sacrificing a better option by whipping the ball to another player or driving and kicking, uh, starting a string of passes that leads to an open three or a dunk. I mean, here's the dirty secret of the NBA that's been exploited rapidly in the last few years after uh, analytics guys were saying, hey, or more than just analytics guys, just just guys breaking down the game were saying, hey, a wide open three-point shot from a role player is better than a double team fadeaway from Kobe. It, it's just mathematically, and a dunk, a dunk from, you know, Bo Outlaw or Miles Turner or anyone who you associate with having less skill than, uh, you know, Kevin Durant or something is a better option all the time. And so to work for that option is ideal. There's been a big shift toward that with the emphasis on mori Ball and three-point shooting and all that stuff. That's how we get here. But when we just do stuff like we're going to do today and try to look at scoring by itself, it, it really is a, a false dichotomy. It's, it's splitting a category unto its own that has a very hard time living on its own. When you go to shoot, when you post up for three seconds and you're a very efficient post-up player, you're sacrificing a different path on offense. And I talk about this in Thinking Basketball, if you guys have read that. Uh, It sounds familiar, so I won't beat a dead horse there. So the classic question when it comes to evaluating scoring impact or scoring proficiency Uh, with, you know, volume, points per game, points per 100 possessions, whatever it is, and efficiency, you know, effective field goal percentage or true shooting percentage. Hey, stand back, blog boys. I am going to use true shooting percentage instead of effective field goal or field goal percentage. The 10-second reason is because true shooting percentage is just points per shot. That's all it is. It's the same math. It just... Incorporate Just like fake Bernie said at the top, it takes into account threes, it takes into account twos, and it takes into account ones. So anytime you hear me say efficiency, I'm just talking about points per your scoring attempt. Every time you go to the line or take a three or take a jumper from the mid-range or whatever, that's an attempt. And the classic conundrum in the world of basketball statistics is, well, how, how do you balance scoring and efficiency? do you give credit to guys who are well ahead of the league uh, but they shoot less? or guys you know how do you handle the Allen Iverson case of guys who are you know scoring in huge, huge buckets, but their efficiency isn't really that great. Uh, so we'll get into or, or, or this metric uh, that I kind of used solves that problem or at least it attempts to balance them. Uh, in a particular way. But before I get to that, uh, defining a pure score, that's another term related to this false dichotomy. Defining a pure score was something that I equally struggled with. I went out to Twitter, got some great responses, and the general idea, the general takeaway that, that I gleaned seems to be there's some idea, pure score, connects to this idea of of, of generating offense Um, or self-generating offense in a variety of situations. In other words, can you create good looks and execute on those looks with efficiency, whether you're at the rim, on the perimeter? It It doesn't matter whether those shots are hard or not. If you have a hand in your face, what matters is do they go in and can you generate them? Almost like on demand, right? So the idea around the best scorers or a great pure score it doesn't seem to be rooted in just isolationism. You know, you can uh, score really well off the ball, you can come off screens, you can cut. These are all things that uh, kind of build into the scoring profile. Uh, but it certainly seems to be about the idea of being able to generate them. The more easily you can generate high quality looks and convert those looks the better you are as a scorer. And we think, in general, that's going to be reflected in your box score scoring metrics, in your stats, and your points per game, and your efficiency, and things like that. I've always wanted a way to balance scoring and efficiency. And I've always wanted a way to figure out just how much scoring is worth. Like, really, how valuable is it To be a great volume scorer, forget passing and creation and defense and all that other stuff that is potentially really valuable. Just if you go back in time, starting with Wilt Chamberlain, like he's the big scorer, he averaged 50 points per game in a season. How valuable is that? And so to set out and answer that question, the first thing I did was I took our our sort of baseline of value metrics that we have in the public sphere, which is plus minus. And we can if if you're not familiar with it, the, the the 30 second spiel is that we can take basically what happens when a guy's on the court, we can look at the scoreboard, and then when he goes off the court, we can look at the scoreboard and we can check the difference. And we can say, Okay, how how valuable, how much is this guy impacting the game? when he's on the court for his team, and then you say, okay, well, I got to adjust for how good his team is, and I got to adjust for how good his teammates are, and we do some adjustment, and we get that figure, and we get a a pretty good idea of, in actual points per game, value, how important a player is on his team, and if he changes teams, it might change, because his role might change, and things like that, but in general, uh, it's not a player ranker, but it's a very good measurement of a guy's value on a team. So we've had that for a long time. And that actually lets us know stuff like, well, on this team, we think this guy's worth, say, five points per game, something like that. Seven points per game, three points per game. But then the question is, well, out of that, how much of that comes from his scoring? So step two is to translate, if you will, the actual real measurement of how the guy affects the scoreboard with what the box score indicators predict. In other words, can we look at the box score, go through all the signals in the box score, say, okay, if I if I take a guy's uh, sort of box score footprint, and then I try to predict what his actual impact his measured value was on that team in plus minus or or technically adjusted plus minus how well can i do that the answer is you can do that pretty well and there's a really good box score stat on basketball reference called box plus minus bpm which does just that so i have my own version and then the final step is to separate out the components so how much of your impact comes from scoring. So the scoring components would be like your points and your efficiency, and it incorporates things like your teammates' efficiency and how much they score and yada, yada, yada. Uh, And basically then you have the ability to look at, okay, this is impact from scoring in the box score. This is impact from Passing and creation in the box score. This is impact from outside shooting. This is impact from rebounding or miscellaneous stuff or or what have you. That was the idea. Uh, And then that allows us to answer the question oh, okay, just how valuable is a scoring season like 50 points per game on above average efficiency? And I'll tell you how valuable it is right after this word from our sponsor. Have you always wanted that flowing? unkempt German hair look? Well, now you can have it with Dirk Hair. You can get our latest hair growing technology targeted specifically for that big German look. Golden locks are in your future at Dirk Hair. Visit www.dirkhair.de to start your trial today. Enter promo code THINK and get 15% off. It's guaranteed or your money back. That, of course, is a pro bono sponsorship. The real folks who power the show are patrons. They support it at patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. If you want to support the show and contribute, you can head over there. It's patreon.com thinkingbasketball. There's some other stuff as well if you browse around. Okay, where was I? So we where we last left off, we took uh, the components of sort of like a box plus minus minus. And, and I broke them off into individual pieces and I said, okay, all of the stuff in the box score that's responsible for, say, playmaking goes here. The stuff that's responsible for scoring goes here. We can have an offensive rebounding component. And then we can look at how much each component contributes to, we can get an estimate for how much each component contributes to a player's value. And if we do that, we end up with, well, first, what's the most valuable component? Is it scoring? Is it playmaking? Is it offensive rebounding? Well, technically, it's offensive rebounding. But it's not really. So let me come back to that. First, the best scoring seasons were worth about four points per 100 possessions. The best playmaking seasons were worth about four points per 100 possessions so right out of the gate the study looking at these individual components says okay scoring and playmaking can be about equal now there's trade-offs right the more you score the less you're going to play play make typically and vice versa it's hard to max out at both at the same time so what we typically see from the great offensive players is really great scoring or good playmaking or vice versa great playmaking and really good scoring. They go together. You need the scoring to drive the playmaking and keep the defense honest. Now, technically the best offensive rebounder, Dennis Rodman, had seasons that were around plus five in Chicago, but those weren't even his best offensive seasons. He had a better offensive overall score when he was with Detroit, and his offensive rebounding was still crazy off the charts, but the value there was plus four. Today, best offensive rebounder types. And again, it's an estimate of offensive rebounding. It may be capturing some other miscellaneous stuff. Uh, DeAndre Jordan, who kind of, uh, you know, falls behind in other areas. Most of his offense comes from this offensive rebounding component. It's maybe around plus three or something. So it's, it's less than the scoring and playmaking. But I think for me, the take home on offensive rebounding was that it could actually be pretty significant in terms of value. And of course, Rodman himself was a positive or valuable offensive player by all kinds of studies. If you haven't read uh, Skeptical Sports, Benjamin Morris, he did a bunch of stuff on it. Um, All the things that I've done on 90s data or old historical impact data show Rodman having positive offensive values. And it's coming from that offensive rebounding component. Okay, so top 10 regular season scores of all time based on this sort of component value, this points per game value based on just your scoring alone. That's all we're doing here. And quick disclaimer, remember, this, this shouldn't be treated as gospel. Uh, it's, it's an estimate, looks at the last uh, couple decades and additionally, in terms of the criteria, I, I didn't want to overly emphasize career length for a list like this because I don't think that's the spirit of the question. I think when people discuss who the best scores are, who's that guy who's that best pure score, if there's a way to separate this other stuff out, which we've tried to do, isn't it really more about at, at the heart of their powers for some sustained period? something like that how good were they at scoring so based on that I went with more uh, of an emphasis on four and five year peaks right in that range a couple years can be too short but if you have longevity if you can power out similar seasons similar value scoring seasons at year eight or year 10 or year 12 then I, I gave a boost in longevity accordingly so without further ado The top 10 regular season scorers of all time. Guys who just missed the cut, who are worth mentioning here. Dwayne Wade, James Harden, Reggie Miller, and Ray Allen. They just missed the cut. All peaking in between 2.5 and and 3 points per game of value coming just from their scoring. At least that's what the estimate says. So philosophically, I've never understood why using a screen to get a shot seems to be penalized you know in some cases using a screen uh, off the ball can be harder to defend because you can just have all kinds of guys set decent screens around the league and it seems very difficult to to cover that kind of court geometry with guys running all over the place uh, ducking you know into the lane Flaring out to the three-point line, heading to the corner, it's just very difficult to defend. So I didn't penalize guys who did off-ball work, and the numbers don't seem to either. Really quickly, Miller peaked at plus 2.9 in 98. That was a season in which he averaged 23 points per 75 possessions and just under uh, 10 percentage points better than the league in true shooting percentage. Um, But he most importantly, he did it on his best offensive team. There's that portability or scaling concept being picked up by the regression, by the metric here. The metric is rewarding players in general who play on better and better offenses. It's actually looking at uh, the the dynamic between the players around them and whether other guys score or pass or whatever. But In general, 1998 was the best offense that Miller played on. He was able to put up those really nice numbers on that offense. And the output here is essentially this scoring component. It was really valuable, almost three points a game. Allen peaked in 2001 at uh, just about two and a half points better. He was uh, same scoring rate and very similar efficiency now you compare that to guys like Wade and Harden. Wade had way more volume in his best season, 2009. Crazy volume. He averaged 31 points per 75. That's one of the highest scoring rates in NBA history. But he was only three percentage points better than league average. Again, that's there's nothing wrong with that. But when you take that efficiency on that kind of very mediocre offense, the algorithm actually says, wait, that's not super valuable. It's good. There's nothing wrong with it. But this idea, you know, the the pattern that essentially it's picking up is saying if you are a guy who's carrying these sort of lesser scoring teams or, or lesser offenses, then in general, that's not going to translate to as much value on the scoreboard. Um, similar but different in the case of Harden. Harden also had a huge, last year was his peak actually, and he averaged 32 per 75 on 6% better than the league in efficiency. That, those are crazy numbers. Those are all time level numbers. But again, the algorithm looks at the whole thing and it says, okay, something's going on here. Essentially what it's saying is something's going on here with Harden's isolationism that isn't quite as valuable. Otherwise, this would be a, a season in the threes or something like that. To me, these are the big takeaways when I look at studies like this, whether they're my own and it's, and it's work I do on my own or it's other folks. I'm, I'm trying to look at patterns or try to understand what some kind of algorithm, uh, regression, machine learning tool, whatever it is, Uh, trying to understand what it says you know we can we can create now incredible we have these uh, neural networks and deep learning techniques but they can get very opaque you know you can it can sometimes become difficult to say it's like the the chess computer if you watch alpha zero it's like okay why is he doing that you can you can maybe study it and and try to glean after a while what alpha zero conceptualizes But the challenge is um, when you run it, he doesn't turn around and say, or it doesn't turn around and say, uh, "Okay, guys, I figured out these things about chess that you didn't know." Okay, guys, I figured out this thing about basketball that you didn't know. So the whole purpose of this exercise is to deconstruct something like this and to say, let's look at the individual components. Can we kind of approximate them, and we use the box score and we look at the individual components, and then we say, okay, we can go level deeper. What scoring seasons are really valuable according to this and it you know it's not gospel right it's not gospel but you can look at the patterns and the patterns are saying scoring seasons on better teams on teams that move the ball more on teams that where you can show essentially that you're the beneficiary of other people's good stuff happening that seems to be rewarded by this algorithm and to me that's that's one of the most profound takeaways, along with just finally being able to answer that question of how valuable is scoring along with playmaking. Okay. Let's do the top 10. I think it's time to get serious and cue the theme music. You must excel at Excel. You've got a row. You've got a column. You must excel at Excel. A lot of data going on in between. Excel at Excel. Let's connect the dots and use some functions. Excel. Okay, coming in at number ten, and this may be a bit of a surprise: Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain. Now, now the metric really only goes back to 1977, but I did go back and estimate. What we're missing before that is stuff like turnovers, and you can go back and estimate. It gets a slightly fuzzier, but you can go back and estimate for the guys who really had a shot at this list, namely. Baylor, Wilt, Jerry West, and Kareem, of course, we have Kareem's last 12 years, we want his whole career. So I went back and, and did that just for fairness. And I think Wilt, his numbers put him right in this range. He, he possibly could be moved even ahead of another guy or two, but that's about it. And I kind of gave him the tiebreaker over the, the honorable mentions earlier, just because the error estimate is fuzzy and things of this nature. Now, another big takeaway here is finally being able to answer how valuable is a 50-point scoring season on decent efficiency, if we actually put a number to that. And in this case, it says it's worth about three points per 100 possessions. Your plus-minus value on offense is helped just from this scoring by 3 points. His numbers by the way now now a couple things going on here. First of all, 50 points per game then would be closer to like 30 or 35 points per game today because Wilt played way more possessions to get the 50 points per game, easily 25% more possessions than a typical team in 2018. And he also played the whole game. He never came out of the game. So he was able to rack up a lot of opportunities to score these points and, and possession adjustment isn't a perfect one to one match or position matters and things like that, but it's a pretty good uh, general indicator. You know, if you play a half a basketball instead sort of an entire 48 minutes, you're just not going to accrue as many assists, rebounds, and points because you literally don't have enough possessions. Now, when we convert that to the scoring rate we have today, Wilt's actually coming in at about 29 points per 75 and his, his shooting efficiency is 6% better than the league. So he's kind of in that ballpark of where Harden was, uh, you know, Wade season stuff like that. Still a great season. Um, incredible scoring season and the fact that it was plus 3 in a really really like high level all-time season is represented here, but the the important takeaway is that just because a guy did that back then doesn't mean you should expect his team to be improved by five points on offense, seven points, something crazy like 10 points on offense. And if you're not familiar with the effect of efficiency on wins, take a 500 team, add three or four points to their offense, and they will be a 50 win team somewhere in that range. Take a 500 team, add seven points to their offense or something. Keep everything else the same. they will be like a 60 win team. So the idea that Wilt regardless of what you thought of his teammates would go to any team with that scoring profile and turn them into a juggernaut seems to be misguided. It seems to be overly rooted in the legend and the lore of 50, you know, 50 points per game. So that's Wilt coming in at number 10. Number 9 Another huge name, another big scoring season, Kobe Bryant. Kobe went over plus two in this metric nine times. That's really good. And his peak, of course, was 2006. Same kind of stuff we saw earlier. He came in that year at uh, two points better than league efficiency and 34 points per 75, one of the highest scoring rates in NBA history, well above... Wilts 1962 season, that season was also valued by the metric at about plus three. Uh, So right in that same range as Wilts 62 season. Remember the team you're on in that environment does impact, you know, it's not just your final points total and where you sat relative to the league. Number eight, moving forward, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem he peaked at an estimated three point three, so it's the best season I've mentioned so far on the pod. He did that in 1971, his sophomore year. The Bucks were incredibly dominant that year. If you if you don't know about that team, check it out. One of the most dominant teams in NBA history. They went on to win the title. And unlike Kobe Kobe went over two nine times. Kareem only went over two five times, but that period in the 70s was a little bit more dominant for him. And even in the 80s, if you're curious, his first seven years of the 80s, he was over plus 1.5 in the metric. So just an incredible, that's why he's the all time scoring leader in NBA history. Just incredible longevity there. At number seven, Steph Curry. Steph Curry in 2016 produced, according to this metric, the greatest or most valuable scoring season in NBA history. Came in at plus 4.3. If you're not familiar with these numbers, sit down. They're going to give you basketball whiplash. He averaged 32 per 75. So that's right, that's ahead of 62 Wilt. That's right behind Kobe. That's up there. That, that is one of the all-time greatest or most prolific scoring seasons ever. And he did it 13% ahead of, of league average efficiency, 13%. And of course, he did it on a monster offense, which is why the metric is saying, yeah, we got you. You're, you're over plus four. And in fact, he's been over plus two and a half the last four years. Really, really big number last year. Again, in 18, when he quietly averaged uh, 30 points per 75 on 12% efficiency, 12% ahead of the league. Number six, Number six, a guy um, with 13 plus two seasons, incredible longevity scoring the ball, and that's Dirk Nowitzki. His peak in uh, 2003 and 2007 was right around uh, three plus three, and in those years he was right around uh, 27 points per 75 and 6% better than league average number five is Shaquille O'Neal also 13 seasons over plus two in this metric and he has I think it's the second best peak of any of the guys we've talked about so far plus 3.4 in 1998 if you don't know about Shaq's 1998 season struggled through some injuries but when he played his numbers were fantastic he had a 30 point per 75 Average and was six percentage points ahead of the league. Really, really phenomenal stuff that year from him. Coming in at number four, a guy commonly associated with the greatest scoring seasons of all time—at least in the regular season—because that's what we're only doing here, regular season so far. And it's Karl Malone. Karl Malone, twelve times over plus two in this metric, and he peaked in nineteen ninety-eight. With the second best year ever, which is a plus four, and, and here's why. The Utah team that year was a phenomenal offense, and they had very good playmakers around Malone, and Malone reciprocated by going 29 per 75 plus seven. Basically saying, yeah, I can provide a heck of a lot of value in high-quality circumstances. He went over three five times. In other words, five times he had the top 40 scoring seasons by this metric. How about number three? Well, number three is a guy who's sometimes not even known for his scoring, which is kind of crazy. I believe as of right now, he has one of the highest scoring averages in NBA history. And that's LeBron James. Like Carmelone, 12 seasons over plus two. Four seasons over plus three. I gave him the nod over Malone here because he has a slightly higher four-year peak than Carl. When you combine the tightness of LeBron's peak here, um, he basically he had a top 25 year ever by this metric in 2010. 2011 is a little bumpy as he integrates with Wade and the Heatles. And then his last three years in Miami, uh, each one of them is a top 20 scoring season of all time per this metric. And he finishes with two top 10 seasons of all time, peaking in 2014. If you guys don't remember, his 2014 season, 28 points per 75. His efficiency was off the charts, 11 points better than league average. Now, who does that leave for? one and two. Well, I think we know it leaves Jordan. The other guy who's a monster scorer is Kevin Durant. And between Jordan and Durant, Jordan had 10 seasons over two, because remember, you know, he missed the 86 season, sat out the 94 season, basically missed the 95 season. So that covers almost everything else in his career. He had five seasons over three which is fantastic, and Jordan had eight consecutive top 60 seasons. If you throw out that 95 season where he played 17 games or whatever at the end of the year, eight consecutive top 60 seasons during the three pre- three-peat run and, and the years leading up to it. And from 1987 to 1998, every single full Michael Jordan year was a top 100 scoring year of all time. He peaked in 91, by the way. 32 points per 75, 7 percentage points ahead of the league, and that came out at plus 3.6, one of the all-time best. But here's the thing. Kevin Durant, Jordan had 8 straight top 60 seasons. Kevin Durant has had 9 straight top 60 seasons. Jordan went over 3, 5 times. Kevin Durant has had Seven seasons over three in this metric plus three. His best four year peak was that four year, not individual season. Four year was plus three point six. That's better than anyone else's. And his peak in two thousand twelve and two thousand fourteen, he's coming in at twenty eight to thirty one points a game uh, points per seventy five possessions. Excuse me, eight to nine percentage points. Uh, above league average and efficiency and his offenses on those teams. And again, playing with guys, the algorithm rewards you when you play with guys who can set up stuff. Well, basically saying you're more valuable when you're not doing a carry job. And Durant ends up with six consecutive top 15 seasons. So he owns six of the top 15 seasons ever in this metric And he put up six of them in a row. The streak ended last year in 2018 with Golden State. So according to this idea of plus minus, the plus minus value of scoring, Kevin Durant is the best regular season scorer in NBA history. And I don't think if you look at just the raw data and you look at his scoring game and you stack it up against anyone else's, Uh, Pinch post, pull up, spot up, transition, penetration. I don't, off the dribble, off the ball. I don't think that's a crazy idea. I think it stacks up right up there with anyone. Now, the question is, does it hold in the postseason? I think on that note, in the interest of keeping podcasts shorter, it feels like we need a part two. Because in part two, what I want to get to, what what's still left on the table here, is to look at the guys who have changed the most between the regular season and the postseason. To now, we can of course do that across the entire box score or across. A player's total performance, and I've got articles and studies that I've done on that before. But in this case, I just want to focus it to scoring because so much of the criticism of players over the years is looking at scoring numbers that fall off or looking at someone's scoring efficiency that's fallen off and saying, okay, this guy's a choker or this guy collapses in the playoffs or his game isn't sustainable in the playoffs. And I think. I want to give that it's due time. It might not take as long as where this installment is, but that to me feels like a natural breaking point where we can talk about the guys who have improved the most in the next installment. And in that episode as well, we can then take that information, combine the regular season and the postseason. I think in this case, you got to give way more weight to the postseason. The defenses were harder. The stakes were higher. And that seems to be in line with the spirit of what, Uh, everyone, at least the feedback that I received, was saying is really the spirit of this question when they think to themselves, who's a great scorer or who's a great pure scorer? So we're going to do a part two. Part two, we'll talk about who improved the most. And in part two, we will finally get to the list of best overall scorers. But yes, for now, Kevin Durant does indeed, at least according to this take, it does indeed paint Kevin Durant as the best regular season scorer in NBA history. Michael Jordan second. Will Chamberlain tenth. We will see in part two, when we look at the playoffs, if that can hold. Remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, let me know what you think on Twitter, LG35, and as always, uh, please support the podcast at Patreon. It is Patreon slash Thinking Basketball. Those will be in the show notes. Pass it around. Share it. Let me know what you think. And I'll talk to you guys in the next episode.